as you bring more equity to the table, your return on equity down, but your cash on cash return goes up. Sometimes it's a little better to go in with more equity so that you have a safer cushion. If you come out on the backside and rates go back down, then you're going to end up winning anyways because the equity multiple will be there. Welcome to Truly Passive Income. I'm Neil Henderson. And I'm Clint Harris. This is a special year-end episode where Clint and I are going to feature our top 12 most popular short clips that we have shared on social media from our episodes over the last year. Why 12? I don't know. 12 days of Christmas, 12 months in the year. It just seemed cooler than top 10. So we're going to play the clip and then Clint and I are going to provide some brief commentary after the fact. We're going to count down from 12 to 1. So, yeah, so for, these are the clips that didn't come from any particular episode, but as a short clip spread across social media, they tended to get a really big reaction, whether it was TikTok or Facebook or Instagram. This is something that somehow drew a reaction that, frankly, sometimes we didn't see coming, that people really reacted to. So we wanted to circle back and just look at exactly what they were and try to add a little commentary as well and just enjoy celebrating going back through some of those moments together. Yeah. And this is primarily a video episode. You'll be able to hear the audio as well, but highly encourage you to find this episode on YouTube so you can see the episodes that we're talking about, the clips and things like that. And Clint's right. Sometimes the reason these were popular is because we got a lot of hate, which is what sometimes happens on social media. So counting down, number 12, most viewed TPI clips. Episode number eight, Eric Hemingway describes how adding HVAC to a storage warehouse conversion increased the cash flow and the value of his storage facility. There was a property that came up for sale not far from us, and we took a look at it. The utility bills were really expensive. I want to say $2,200, $2,500 a month, and they were using high-pressure sodium lights. But because the kind of light that old gymnasium, when you turn them on, you hear this huge clunk, and then 30 minutes before you actually get light from them, they have to heat up the ballast and all this stuff. Because they take so long to turn on, the owners just left them on all the time, 24-7. So their utility bills were $2,200, $2,300 a month, and the building was not air-conditioned. So it was hot in the summer, cold in the winter. When we bought the building, the first thing we did is change all the lighting to LED. And that was a situation where we were able to get a credit from Duke Energy, the power company in North Carolina. And they paid for, I think, 80%, 90% of the upfit cost through a federal tax program. So we changed all the lighting to LED. And then we added 40 tons of HVAC, air conditioning and heating to the building. And now even with adding all of that air conditioning and doing the LED, our bills are $800. So the bill went to about a third and we got brand new lighting and now it's climate controlled. So we were able to take the rents from, I think they were $79 for a 10 by 10 non-climate controlled. And I think now we're at 159 somewhere in that neighborhood. That was really a fantastic win on both sides, cutting expenses, raising rents and being able to justify the raised rents. Because even after we raised rents, we were expecting them to come in with pitchforks and torches, angry about the rent increase. And all we got was compliments like, oh my gosh, I have to come here and organize my stuff. And now it's air conditioned. And now it's heated. I don't dread coming here like they used to just date in the summer in there. So they're grateful for them to pay another 40, 50 bucks and actually get productivity done there was huge for them. So they were really happy with that. And of course, that just helped the bottom line explode. So that was a great win. So that's what we do routinely now. We first check an old building. We're like, well, we know we're going to save a ton on the lighting right off the bat. And depending on which state, which programs we can qualify for. But yeah, we definitely like to explore every option there. So part of the reason this was a popular clip was because a lot of people came out and hated on Eric for what? You lowered your expenses and raised rents? You evil landlord. 
But what are your thoughts on that, Clint? How dare you, right? How uh, dare you? Make this money. is classic value add strategy. This is exactly what you're looking for, right? Within commercial real estate, same as residential real estate investing, there's a lot of different levers that you can pull, right? You can increase the value of the property, putting granite countertops or stainless steel or whatever the asset class, and you can increase the rents. Or you can look for ways to reduce your expenses, whether take the water that's going to an apartment complex and meter it separately to the different units or whatever it may be, pass some of those expenses on. So classic value add is you're either getting rid of an expense or you're increasing the net operating income. And one way or the other, it adds value to the property. This is just a situation where you're able to do both. And obviously, when you can do that, it creates a significant spread. And I think there's also value in we did get a lot of hate from this, right? A lot of people were upset, like, you know, you capitalist pigs, how could you? But the reality is the reaction of the consumers was they stayed and were willing to pay it because they saw the value, right? They had experienced what it was like being in that building when it was 125 degrees inside. It's just a brick building. It's basically a kiln. So those people certainly understood the value of it. It was market rents in the marketplace for climate controlled. So I don't think you're gouging anybody. I think you're providing a different service and it's a different product than it was before. And I think it really just highlights the simplicity of commercial real estate. Like we talked about the different levers that you can pull, increase the rents, decrease the expenses, whatever. And a lot of people look at residential real estate as simple and commercial real estate is complicated and there's too much going on. It's hard to understand the values, but the reality is it's really simple. Residential real estate, the bricks and sticks of that house is basically the value is established by what the neighbors paid for theirs and what people are willing to pay for yours. In commercial real estate, the value of the property is determined by the income that it generates and the expenses going out. The net operating income is basically what determines the valuation on the property. So just a little bit of a tweak like that, a little bit of a tweak on, well, in this case, a significant tweak in reducing the expenses on the electrical in this situation by over 60% and increasing the value of the rents because you change from one asset class to another, non-climate controlled to climate controlled. That's a pretty big swing in terms of the monthly income on the property, but it's a massive swing in terms of the actual value of the property. Well, and again, that value, that equity is something that you can tap. You can take that new valuation, go back to a bank and say, this property was worth this and now it's worth this. And you can get a cash out refi on it and pull some of your own money or some of your investor money out tax-free. Exactly. And you know what, to the people that had a problem with the way that he did it, don't use it. That's the beauty of America, right? If it doesn't fit for you and it's not meeting your needs or it's too expensive, you have plenty of other options. And in the long run, the market is going to determine what the value is. If you don't like it, you certainly don't have to be a part of it. But I would say that's responsible investor. Just looking at the levers that you can pull. All right. Number 11 from episode 24, our good friend, Spencer Cornelia, who's a bit of a YouTube star, explains why sports betting and affiliate marketing is one of the worst industries due to the unrealistic claims and enabling gambling addiction. The worst is sports betting because some of these, let's say Amazon e-commerce, like really low success rate, but real estate agents have a low success rate. So should that be the determining factor of someone succeeding or is it a scam or not a scam? And some of these guys actually have a little bit of success. Maybe they overhype their product, but it's, there's at least enough success there where a good student can take the course and run with it. But sports betting, on the other hand, these guys are all losers. And the way they try to legitimize themselves is through their gold chains, their cash on their dinner table and their fancy cars. The problem is sports 
sports betting has a 0% success rate. In gambling addiction, I'm not an expert here, but some people would argue gambling addiction is one of the worst kinds of addiction, arguably the worst addiction. And so you're influencing young men to think that they're just a few picks away from starting to make a lot of money. And if you keep buying my picks, then you can start winning a lot of money. And that might lead someone to not only to losing money, but entering into a funnel of gambling addiction, which is why I think that industry is the worst. So I think this highlights something that you and I harp on a lot, which is that there's an entire marketing industry that's grown up around the term passive income. It's one of the primary reasons that you and I started this podcast in the first place and called it truly passive income. But I also think that it highlights that you got to be careful about what passive income gurus are selling out there because a lot of it is has a low success rate and it's not passive. Yeah, I thought it was pretty interesting that this clip got so much attention, especially when it's really not in the vein of what we talk about most of the time. I think this struck more towards addiction and things that can really suck you in. They can be a significant trap. For me, the lesson is especially, and you're going to see some of this in real estate investing or crypto. You're going to see it in Amazon drop shipping. You're going to see it in Airbnb training courses. Usually the people trying to look the richest are not. Strengths and weaknesses. If you think classic poker terms like whoever's trying to look strong is usually weak. Whoever's trying to look weak is usually strong. And so I think being able to see through the veil of what the internet and marketing has turned into is really important. That the people that are the loudest and trying to draw you in, it's usually not because they have a lot of money. It's because they want yours. That's such a great point, Clint and I. We are in our own right sort of real estate wealth influencers. And we shy away from doing things that feel skeezy like that, I would say. But it's hard because it works. Yeah. If it didn't, other people wouldn't be doing it. At the end of the day, I think you and I are always going to encourage people to do the same thing that we've done is that in this situation, for them, it's a transaction or it's a course. For us, most of the time, we're invested into individual deals or funds. And so, yeah, the deal matters, but not as much as the operator matters. And in terms of ethics and transparency, Same kind of thing. It can be a slippery slope, especially with people making false promises. Like there's no way you can make promises with things like this situation, gambling, or a lot of times even different types of Amazon dropshipping or Airbnb. We all know it comes down to the operator. At the end of the day, it's going to perform as good as the operator does. So it was interesting to see this one pop up and get such an impression. But I think it maybe he's just got his finger on the pulse of something that people care about right now, because this generation is being tempted in a way that It really wasn't around 10 or 15 years ago. All right. Number 10. This was a standalone clip. This didn't come from an episode. This was me responding to a comment on one of our videos, which you will actually see later on TikTok. And I was replying to a comment where someone was saying that a way that people make money is with storage. They own storage and car washes. And this guy responded, oh, screw off. 90% of those businesses are good because of money laundering. There's no such thing as passive income. And this was my response. I can't speak for every self-storage owner and car wash owner, but I can guarantee you the ones that I'm involved with are very definitely not money laundering operations. They're very profitable businesses that provide a great service for people in the areas that they serve. I will say, you say, there's no such thing as passive income. And you're absolutely right. The whole term passive income has been co-opted by an entire marketing industry that are marketing the idea of passive income, when in reality, what they're talking about is what is residual income. And that residual income comes after an enormous amount of work. 
Now, the only way you get passive income is when you have money to invest in something like a stock or to buy real estate where you're not the landlord or in a savings account. That's the only true passive income. It's basically when you are putting your money with a group of managers that are taking care of that money and executing a business plan and giving you a great return. Thoughts on that? Did you record that on your front porch? Because I'm pretty sure I can see the ocean in the reflection on the window. <laughs> yes, I did. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's right. Like that's especially early on with this podcast and a lot of the conversations that you and I have. It's funny that we named the podcast Truly Passive Income because what we do more than anything is debunk what is not truly passive income and shoot that down. And ultimately, if you really want to get nitpicky, there is no passive income because leading up to anywhere that you're going to put your money for somebody else to take care of it and you're combining your capital with their time and experience, you still have to go through a vetting process. You still have to make sure that you have trust and that you understand the deal, you understand the operator. And so you can argue that there's a level of work that you have to do there. I would tend to say that it's more about just self-education and getting yourself to where you have a financial acumen that you can make intelligent decisions, but nobody's born with that. So you can argue that you got to do a little bit of work there, but I think you're exactly right. That's the biggest thing about passive income is it's just a buzzword. And I wish we could come up with another term that other people hadn't thought of yet that kind of trademark because it's a crowded, crowded space and you got to wade through a lot of noise. Um, but frankly, I think you made a good point earlier. A lot of the larger impressions that we got are hate. There's a lot of trolls out there. A lot of it is people that unfortunately have been burned. And so good or bad, people are going to form an opinion on it. And bad tends to be the one that we see more of. I think that's telling. I think it speaks to the value of self-education. Yeah. I think there's two points that I cover in this video. And you just brought up the point of the passive income, but also this guy accusing those businesses of being money laundering operations. Now, maybe on Breaking Bad, car washes and self-storage are great places to launder your money and both store your money. But in the reality, most storage businesses and car washes are very legitimate businesses. They're commercial real estate that we invest in and others invest in to great success. A lot of those assets like car washes and self-storage, it's a very fragmented market. Like Traditionally, that's been a very mom and pop operated market, very regional and localized basis. And we're starting to see that really consolidate. Hurricane car washes, a few of the bigger operators. And then obviously within storage, there's a little bit of a gold rush that's been going on for a few years now. You're seeing consolidation. You're seeing the big money players come in and really tighten that up. Obviously, they wouldn't be moving into that space if there wasn't a significant need. In my opinion, it's not discretionary spending for most people, maybe not car washes as much, but especially for storage, that's a necessity for most people. All right. Number nine with a bullet. From episode 10, our good friend Alex Felice, he talks about avoiding the entrepreneur's trap and maintaining your freedom while you're building wealth. And I love, this is one of my favorite clips. Don't tell Alex. We'll go from there. The thing about passive income, people want freedom. And the biggest thing that I found about people that chase financial freedom is like a really weird phenomenon is they hate their jobs. And so they want to go get financial freedom. But along the way, they get obsessed with some new thing. They get obsessed with buying houses or finding deals. And what they do is they give themselves golden handcuffs. Now, maybe the job that they create for themselves about around real estate is more fulfilling job. It's their company. So that's definitely got an incentive than working for somebody else. But I talk to a lot of people that make a lot more money than me and have a lot more tangible and measurable, absolute success than me, financial success, business success. And they are bored. 
they're stressed out. They have plenty of money to have freedom and they don't know how to spend their time meaningfully. So they just spend their time making more money, not knowing what to do with it and stressing out about it. Very telling. I think that one of the things from the last year, some of the different conferences that you and I've gone to, some of the private dinners that we've had, it's one of the things I love about a podcast is it gives me opportunity to connect with a lot of people that are smarter than me that are willing to share their life experience with me. And we get the same thing from some of the dinners and conferences that we go to. We've spoken to a lot of millionaires and people that are on their way to doing really big things, but we've also spoken to quite a few of 10 to 50 millionaires, 50 to 100 millionaires, some 100 plus millionaires, and we've run in some circles with one or two billionaires. And it's amazing to me. Again, it's the same kind of thing. People that are worth like maybe up to $10 million tend to be pretty flashy. The people that are in the 10 to 50, not so much. And the people that are serious money, like you would never know. But one thing that seems to be constant is more and more discussion about fear of losing it or fear of generational loss. And how do they pass it down from one generation to the next? Maybe I'm going a little bit down the rabbit hole, but Alex is bringing up something that seems to be a constant is that this can be a slippery slope. Everybody's got certain financial goals, mostly related to time and freedom that they're after, but this can be a slippery slope in terms of you work so hard to get there and then you get there and then what? Like, How do you spend your time or do you just spend your time fearing losing what you've made? And I think there's real value and importance in focusing on you're not building up so that one day in the future you could live a good life and enjoy what you've built. That's not what it's about, right? And it's also not saving your whole life so you can get to retirement so you can do what you want. Like, I think there's real value in creating balance in terms of what you like to do physically, who you spend time with, where you go, how you spend your time, and not getting stuck on the rat race of just more, more, more. There's really no endpoint unless you set one for yourself. I think it's a potential trap. Yeah. It's such a entrepreneurs and people, high earners are so driven and they get so good at whatever it is that's earning them the money that I think they often lose sight of why they're earning the money. My mom is a great example. My mom busted her butt. She was a very successful television executive for 28 years with the same company. She retired in the early 2000s in her early 60s before 65. And she kind of came apart physically shortly after retirement because she was working so hard. And then all of a sudden that was over and then she didn't know what to do with her time. And I think a large part of her struggles was just that like she went from being in this whirlwind to all of a sudden just this quiet that she couldn't deal with. And she hadn't really developed the hobbies and things like that that would fulfill her in retirement. She was just focused on that job and making money. And then all of a sudden it was over and she didn't know what to do. And it, she really discovered happiness once she sort of found something else to fill her time, some other purpose. And that's really where she, she found her happiness. And I think it's important for people who are trying to build wealth to remember why you're doing it. You're not just doing it to collect a hoard to then pass on to your next generation. It'd be nice, but you know, you got to find something else besides money to fulfill you. So number eight, episode 14, Matt McFarland, a CPA, and he shares an example of how he, early in his CPA career, he was doing the taxes for a retired syndicator and he saw how much money this guy was making tax-free and that opened 
his eyes to the whole idea of real estate investing. I was reviewing a gentleman's tax return. He was probably in his 60s. He was retired. He was investing in real estate. And you're looking at his tax return and he add back to depreciation because he has expense he's not paying for. And then you quickly realize that this 60 something year old, and this is 25 years ago, this person was making over $200,000 in cash flow as a retired 60 year old investor and not paying any taxes. And so that's when the light bulb went off for me that there was something there. Thoughts? The value of depreciation. Income is such a two-sided game, right? So many people are focused on making more. Or if they're thinking about saving, it's saving on, well, I'm going to not buy Starbucks or I'm going to drive a used car or I'm going to find a way to reduce my housing expense. The biggest check that you're cutting is to Uncle Sam, right? And the federal government has a tax code that is constantly changing. And the reason they change it is to use it as a system to incentivize the economy. They're pushing people, they want people buying and selling houses, developing, building. All of that is what drives the economy. It also increases the tax basis and the government makes more money. So they use taxes as a way to drive economic development. Because of that, they incentivize people and they use that tax code to push people to do what they want them to do by creating savings. When you realize that, I think we were all raised to just think that taxes are something to be feared. Like the government says, you owe us a bunch of money. And we say, how much? And they say, well, we're not telling you, but you better get it right. And if not, you're going to jail, right? And it's so everybody was terrified and the IRS is going to come get you. The reality is taxes are a game. The whole thing is a game put together by the federal government to drive development for them to ultimately have the economy look good so the people in office get elected or stay in office. I promise you everything is going to start looking a lot more rosy the year of an election than it did a couple years before. There's a reason behind all of it. Once you understand that it's a game and you start reading the rules and you start looking for the changes and the loopholes that are legal that they are putting into place, you realize you're not cheating the tax code if you're jumping through and you're utilizing things like accelerated depreciation, cost segregation study, 1031 exchange, Delaware statutory trust. If you're doing some of these different things out there that were put in place to drive development, that's the game, right? That's how you get ahead. You're never going to save enough money on your groceries to make that big of a difference because at the end of the day, you've got to eat. There's a cost of those goods. There's only so much time that you have. And if you're in a job where you're trading time for money, there's only so much money that you can make. The biggest thing that you can do is we often talk about eliminating your housing expense through house hacking. That can give you a 30% bonus right there. And besides that, using real estate as a way to legally avoid taxes or defer them and kick them down the road. Yeah. I'll use a good friend of mine who lives in California as an example. He's a high earner who lives in California. And I talked to him just last night. He's like, I pay 39% of my income to Uncle Sam and another 11% to the state of California. 50% of what he makes goes away to taxes. There is no bill in his life larger than that. That probably the next bill down is probably his housing. And then the next one down from that would be his car payment. And then down from that would probably be if he has a student loan, which he doesn't need more. It's so often that people are looking for, like you said, they're looking for ways to save money, but they're often looking at the smallest things, the things with the least amount, you know, your $500 a month Starbucks habit is nothing compared to your $2,000 a month mortgage or your $3,000 a month mortgage or your 
do the math, a thousand dollar a month tax bill. Right now in storage, self-storage syndication conversion projects, we're averaging around 35 to 40% depreciation on our projects. So if you take $100,000 and you drop it into, let's say, a self-storage conversion fund or any kind of fund that's getting that kind of depreciation, that $100,000 is going to save you thirty-five dollars to $40,000 a year, not a year, at least one time in taxes. But besides that, past that year, that $100,000 is still working for you. You're still earning a return on that. So you're playing offense and defense. And I think that defensive side of mitigating your tax risk is something that most people don't pay enough attention to. Take your friend, for example, every year, half of his income gets taken away. It's like going through a divorce every year and Uncle Sam gets half of it. Like, How do you do that and expect to get ahead? You can't save money faster the government's taking half of it away. Then you're supposed to take the other half and save it in an account that earns a return faster than the inflation eats away the value at it because of the other money that the government is printing. It just doesn't pencil. All right. Number seven, this was from one of our most recent episodes. And this was one that probably was popular for, it was kind of a hate comment. And this is Carrie Cook. And she's talking about how the power of the Roth IRA and how you can pay taxes now by maxing out contributions to a Roth early in your life to basically do exactly what Clint and I were just talking about, which is pay less taxes later on. I try to harp on the younger generation to say, start with the Roth. Don't even bother. Figure it out. Don't go to Starbucks every day. Whatever you have to do, pay the tax now because you're never going to see that tax bracket again in your lifetime. I truly believe that you will never see it again in your lifetime. So, you know, take advantage of the opportunity now. So that way, when they go to invest in real estate, everything that they invest in, both with income and potential equity or capital gains, they're not going to be paying additional tax on. Those are the major, major, major differences between the two. So two things here. One, the reason this got so much hate comment is because the quickest way to get a group of young people to hate on you is to say that they need to give up their Starbucks or their avocado toast. And I actually disagree with Carrie here. And we talked about this. It's not your Starbucks or your avocado toast that's keeping you down. It's your housing costs and your student loan payment and your car payment. Um, And the other thing that I think she makes such a good point about is a traditional IRA is someone who is thinking that they're going to have a lower taxable income in retirement. Somebody who invests in a Roth is thinking they're going to have a higher tax bracket when they retire. And I think that's one of the major differences between those two retirement vehicles. Yeah, I think that this lesson is really important, but it has a shelf life. The reality is if you're 45 and you're just now understanding the value of a Roth IRA, you kind of missed the boat. You're in your earning years, your peak earning years. You've kind of caught your stride. The value of the Roth IRA has is people in their 20s, early 30s, right? If you understand the value of maybe you're just starting your career, either just out of college or didn't go to college, you're in the trades or just finishing grad school or whatever, those are the years where you want to be socking money away because you're paying the taxes on the dollars. It's not that much in taxes because you don't earn a lot. You sock that money away and then later you can use those funds. They're going to earn a return and then you can convert them into self-directed funds. You can invest in real estate with them. You can put them into syndication. She was talking about how she invests in a syndication that buys cattle every year, grass-fed beef. You can do an unlimited amount of things with the money. 
But again, the reason you're socking it away is you want to pay the taxes up front when you're not in a high tax bracket. So to me, there's a little bit of a shelf life there, and it's a really valuable lesson for people to learn early. It's not a vehicle that works really well if you're in your 40s, 50s, or 60s. But if you did it early, you're going to be really glad when you're in your 40s and 50s, especially 60s. Yeah. All right. Number six, halfway there. This is from episode 13. Robert Shortsleeves, our good friend, he talks about how his first real estate investment was buying a rice field in Indonesia. And then I bought a rice field in Indonesia. Great cash flow. Yep. <laughs> so my wife's Indonesian. Yeah, an opportunity popped up. So I cast out my Roth IRA and bought a rice field for $20,000. Wow. That was my very first investment. We're in the process of selling it right now. Oh, yeah. That tale as old as time. I've heard that one a million times. That old yeah. chestnut. That's the strangest <laughs> beginning of real estate investing I've heard. <laughs> that one's popular just because it's weird. It got the impressions. It clicked a lot of different boxes for a lot of different people. But first of all, Robert, it's a great guy. He's actually living in Bali now, bought a place over there. So it was fun to see that journey come full circle. This is a guy that bought a rice field in Indonesia as his first investment and then went on to be one of the more successful wholesalers and flippers in the state of North Carolina. So what a heck of a way to get started in real estate. All right. Number five from episode nine is our good friend, Tim Vitale. Tim's a multifamily investor here in North Carolina and here talking about the key loan factors that give you a margin of safety in commercial real estate and why he seeks out mortgage brokers to help find financing. I'm a big believer in paying people to do what they do best. So I always pay a loan broker to analyze these deals and go out to market and get us the best loan option possible. They do most of the legwork. And then I do all the underwriting on our properties. So they bring me a bunch of different options and I'll have 15 different spreadsheets going of all of the same numbers, but changing the debt here and there, like tweaking it a little bit here and there and trying to see what the best option is for investors. I'm looking at what the best returns are for investors, but I'm also looking what the best return is for me. And whatever good for me is good for them. First and foremost, we're putting enough time and effort into each one of these loan purchases, acquisitions, refinances, whatever. So make sure that we're getting the best rate possible. The leverage is a little bit less important to me as the rates and the loan terms, because as you bring more equity to the table, your return on equity goes down, but your cash on cash return goes up. And where we are in the market right now, sometimes it's a little better to go in with more equity so that you have a safer cushion. If you come out on the backside and rates go back down, then you're going to end up winning anyways because the equity multiple will be there. But what we're trying to do is make sure that the property is going to be safe and that there's going to be enough debt coverage there to pay its bills because nobody wants to have a capital call. A capital call will be a syndicator's death. And I make sure that we have enough money in reserves to pay out everything that we need to and then build some reserves and make sure that the property can pay for itself because that's what we're selling when we're getting people to invest into our deals. And the worst thing I can do is say, hey, I know you already gave me $4 million to go buy this property, but I need a little bit extra more money because the debt service changed and the expenses aren't doing what I thought they were going to do. And now I underwrote it wrong and I'm going to need some more money. But nobody wants to give you more money after I've already invested money into the deals. That's probably first and the foremost of my mind, what I'm paying attention to is debt coverage ratio and time frame, right? Because the number one thing that's on your side with real estate is time. 
So I don't want to be locked into something that's on a 12 or 18 month refinance cycle. Because if something goes wrong in the market in months, hell, not even 12, but less like six to eight months. If something like that happens again, then I have push in there to ride it out until the wave comes back up. Real estate over the long term, you're going to win. The people that get burned in the short term because they need to be in and out of something quickly, those are the ones that are going to end up in hot water because they don't have time on their side. Wow. First of all, Tim is a very sharp guy. He's a great operator. But besides that, that aged really well because we're seeing the market right now. It's a bloodbath. The people out there that used variable rate debt, you and I are hearing bad news every week. Wow. This is capital call over here. Wow. These five syndications stop distributions. Wow. This one's going down total loss. Like it's happening and it's always happening to people that use variable rate debt with timeframes that put them at risk, right? And it's one of the reasons we're so strict about never using variable rate debt, but we're doing different types of deals than big multifamily deals like these. But I think that it really speaks to, again, the operator and not the deal, making sure people understand the long-term vision and not being put in a situation where you have to get in or out of a deal at a certain time. Because if the market dictates that that's not the best time, you have to have the ability to pivot, which means you've bought yourself some wiggle room there. So yeah, I mean, he sounds a lot more intelligent even now than he did a year ago when we recorded it. That's aged very well. A lot of the multifamily operators that are in trouble right now are either just got in over their head or some of them are newer operators who one, don't have the experience or the cash reserves to weather this storm. It's not that the interest rates are high that is the problem. It's the fact that the interest rates rose faster than they have at any time in history. And a lot of these guys were buying in on variable rate debt, as Clint points out, thinking that, okay, well, what's the most interest rates going to go up? It's going to go up 2% over the next um, you know, four years. Well, in reality, it went up like 7% in 18 months. And that's caused just absolute anarchy, especially the multifamily space. That's kind of what you can do with the debt. At that point, you're stuck with what you chose. I think one of the things that he's bringing up is the value of having options. We started out with our first few deals. We were getting quotes from three to five to seven different banks to find terms that we were looking for, always thinking that a lot of times when you go local or the bank that's already holding the note on the property, that's usually going to give you the best terms. Well, now we're using a service that sends it out to 25 to 30 different mortgage brokers, sometimes more. So having those options of just what he talked about, like a mortgage banker is going to be able to give you the products that his bank offers. A mortgage broker is going to be able to go find different products from different banks all over. And some of those that are trying to get into the space, some are always going to be more aggressive than others. Different banks have different buckets of money they're willing to put into different assets. So one bank might be full with you know, residential mortgages or commercial or multifamily, but they're very interested in diversifying their portfolio by getting into the self-storage space. So they're going to be really aggressive with terms there. So I think it's the value of a mortgage broker is basically a headhunter that's going to go out and find a lot of different products with a lot of different providers and bring it to you so that you can run those scenarios. Now, ultimately, the debt that you pick and how good you do in terms of building the margins into place, like an operator is going to be exposed. When times are good, everybody looks like a genius. When times get tough, you're going to find out who did it right and who did it wrong. But ultimately, casting a wide net with a mortgage broker or a dozen mortgage brokers and having access to a lot of different loan products, that's going to give you the best deal. And frankly, it's what people should do with their own home purchases as well. 
Well, it's also a point to remember that a lender in a way is a partner and you oftentimes they can keep you from making a bad decision because they're going to underwrite it and they're going to underwrite it pretty strictly, sometimes stricter than you would. And they may, in some cases, point out something that was going to maybe get you in trouble down the line and keep you from making a bad decision. Number four from episode 10, it's another Alex Felice. Alex, this is a great one. It's another one I love from Alex where he suggests having hobbies for health, money, and creativity to provide a balanced life for entrepreneurs. You need three hobbies in life. One that makes you money, one that keeps you in shape, one that keeps you creative. Boom. Most people don't have all three. Most people don't even have two. You need a fitness hobby. You have to have one. I don't care if you do Pilates, yoga, run, right? I deadlift. I don't care what you do. CrossFit. I don't care what you do, but you got to do something. Health is wealth, right? It's foundational. It's also spiritual. It's also mental. Like the whole thing, physiological. You have to have a health hobby and that will get you out of your comfort zone and fitness will give you confidence because you'll feel better. And then when you feel good, you're like, I can take on the world. Two, money hobby. I say it specifically as a money hobby because not everybody wants to be a mogul or, or an entrepreneur or build a business. Dude, you just need a hobby that makes money. You just need something. I buy real estate once in a while. My plan is just buy one house a year for the rest of my life. I will be radically wealthy if I just do that one house a year thing. And I don't even have to get great deals, just mediocre deals. That will work. That's a hobby. Third one is creative. If you are not creating something, if nothing's coming out of you, that's helping the world or giving your gift out to somebody, you're missing something about the process of humanity. And so whether it's blogging, podcasting, I do cameras, you have to create something. It doesn't have to be art. I was terrible at guitar. You don't want to hear me sing. I don't know what it is, but you have to create something. So the process of taking the world in, information, the things you learn, the experiences you have, and then telling it to somebody else your way, creating something that's unique. You don't have to be the first one, but it has to be your version. Those three things, dude, you will be miles ahead of the rest of the world and you'll be very fulfilled in a short amount of time. Alex, I love that guy. I can't explain it, but he's got this very unique ability to make a lot of noise, but still somehow cut through the noise to something that's central. And you can hear that and immediately everybody that hears it goes, yes, that's right. And a lot of people don't know how to verbalize it, but he's got this innate ability to cut to the core of what it's all about because income by itself is worth nothing. At the end of the day, I think we all know your health is the most important thing and then how you spend your time and what you do with your freedom. But I love that. He always just has the ability to cut immediately to the heart of the matter and anybody that hears it. It's not surprising to me that that got a ton of impressions on social media and blew up on TikTok because it's like you hear that and you're like, that's truth. Yeah. Well, and it's something I need to remind myself every day. You know, you're working out every morning with a great group and that's a big priority for you. I'm not taking as care of that as I should. You and I have what we do is not a hobby. And it's also not making us a lot of money right now. So maybe we need to make this more of a hobby. And then for me, creativity wise, I'm a photographer, although I don't take as many photos as I should. It's something I've always enjoyed. It's always an aspect of my life that I've given me some creative expression. I used to be an actor once upon a time, and I guess my creativity really nowadays mostly comes from this podcast, but I got to find something else. And I think everybody can find that for themselves. I mean, obviously I've got two young boys. You've got a young son as well. Like Life gets in the way, but I think still finding a way to find that within your current environment and what you're doing. And like, for me, a lot of the creativity is like being on the water for me, offshore fishing and figuring out target species and having a challenge, things like that. I think it, that kind of hits a lot of the same places in my soul where I really feel nourished and I get something out of that. That's 
what it is for me. I think it looks different for everybody and it needs to look at different for everybody. Everybody's a little different, but I think recognizing that I think those were really three strong pillars to focus on. I love the way that he was so concise with it a lot more than typically him. All right. Number three from episode 24, another Spencer Cornelia. Spencer is a YouTuber. And here he talks about all of the work that goes into producing a quote unquote passive income asset like a YouTube video. I don't think the average consumer of YouTube understands the effort that gets put into videos in 2023. Like creating a video is actually the easiest part. I have a 17 page script for my next video. If any of you remember like being in college and writing essays, I'm writing one a week. This isn't just like me writing down ideas. I'm thinking about the video when writing the script. I'm creating a hook, the intro. I'm making sure the pacing is strong. I'm making sure that I'm bringing up supporting points when I'm adding critical commentary about someone. When I'm writing a 17 page script, this takes like two full days. That's after four or five, six days of planning. I read 20 different lawsuits for this video and I intertwined all of the stories. Now, this one's a little more effort intensive, but the point is that this is going to be like a two week process for one video and I'm experienced now. And so when you say, yeah, passive income, it's like it's entirely active. And yes, I have digital real estate with old videos still racking up views. That isn't entirely true because I have to stay active to receive the passive income. If I stop actively making videos, videos will still get views, but it will be 90% drop overnight. That interview with Spencer, first of all, he's done, I don't even remember how many millions and millions of views he's had. That guy's done some amazing stuff. But I walked away from that interview for sure that I don't want to ever try to be a YouTube star. That guy is grinding. He is working and it is a lot. Now, I think that that probably got a ton of impressions because a lot of people have ambitions of making it big in that space. That's a little bit of a buzzword, right? And also he's really well recognized, like he's famous. So especially in that space. So I'm not surprised that it got a huge reaction, but for me, it was definitive as like, this is not the way for me. Well, you know, you and I talk about this all the time where we talk about the whole idea of residual income. You know, it takes an enormous amount of work and you're shoveling, you're using that work to create little pieces of coal that you're then shoveling into a fire and it keeps burning for a while. You've still got to keep making that coal and you've still got to keep tending that fire. Otherwise it'll go out. And that's really, to me, what Spencer is talking about here is that it's not passive income by any stretch of the imagination. It's very much residual income. And it's not just like, oh, I created these videos and now they were popular and now I can just live off them for the rest of my life like a real estate asset. It's not, there's a shelf life. It eventually spoils and you know, the views will drop down to almost nothing if you're not continuing to produce more content. Yeah, we hear the term evergreen a lot, but it's evergreen content. Okay, well, maybe for Mr. Beast, because he started with 300 million views and when it drops off by 90%, it's still 30 million. You know what I mean? For the average person, I was really surprised to hear that. I think there's just so much content moving into that space that it just gets buried. It gets buried so fast that I think the idea of, oh, I'm going to record it one time. It's going to be out there. It's going to earn me revenue forever. It's going to be evergreen. This is the most successful YouTuber I've ever spoken to personally. And he's saying that's definitely not the case. That was pretty eye-opening for me as well. All right. Number two, episode 10, Alex Felice again. Alex is talking here about the perception of what you can do with real estate versus the reality. And also some of his lessons learned from building up a collection of cash flowing real estate. It had a 10 year plan to get 10 units and it took me three. And then I was like, what else can I do that I'm sandbagging on? And along the way, I found a lot of things I'm good at. I'm okay at deal finding, but I'm like you, I just, it bores me. I don't want to do it. 
I want passive income, right? I want passive income. If I had more cash, if I had a high income job, I would literally just, I'd be an LP. I'd give it to you guys. I don't want to go deal hunt and I don't mind managing and talking to people, but somebody else is better at it than me and they like it. So here you go. I'd rather just be an LP. It's like almost the same amount of money with no responsibilities. Yes. Heck yes. I'll do that. That's probably got a lot of interactions again, because Alex is Alex and he's connected with Brandon Turner and he's bigger pockets and he's got a wide footprint for a lot of different reasons, but also like the sheer audacity to just be like, yeah, I just don't want any responsibilities and I just want to get paid. That's going to resonate with people. Sure. That's what we all want. And an LP, for those who don't know, is limited partner. And that's basically, you're just taking your capital you're giving it to somebody else for them to use their time and their experience. They're the general partner that takes on all the liability and it's investing their life into the asset. And you're the limited partner. You just put your money in and sit back and collect checks. That's really one of the only few pathways to truly passive income. So yeah, again, I'm not surprised that resonated with people. Well, and I think what he's talking about here is you know, the problem for most people is they don't have enough money to really be an LP. Like the average person doesn't have $50,000 that they can drop into a deal. And, you know, that return is going to be good, but it's not going to necessarily be as good as someone who's maybe on a little more on the active side, like Alex was when he was building up those, I think he's got nine units and it took him three years to do it. But he did come to a realization at some point that he didn't enjoy that. He didn't want to keep doing that. What Alex enjoys is actually creating content. He's a photographer. He's a videographer. That's really what fires him up. And he wanted to go off and do that. But there are a lot of people out there that they make a good living as a IT professional, as a software engineer, or as a cardiologist. And they sometimes they will sort of go down that real estate rabbit hole and they'll hear about these people, you know, buying a distressed single family rental and renovating it and then putting a renter in it and refining it, doing a burr. Well, the reality is that's a lot of work. And as you often say, keep the main thing, the main thing. And I think that's kind of what Alex here is saying. I mean, he's also saying, yeah, listen, it's going to be passive. I want it to be passive. Yeah. And know thyself, right? Know what you're good at, what you're not. I built a business before a property management company with 85 listings. And the smartest thing I ever did was 18 to 24 months in, I got out of the way and let the operators operate built it up, put the pieces in place, and then realize that the other partners that I had are frankly just better than me and get out of the way and everybody's happier as a result. So just knowing yourself, especially as you get older and you try new strategies. All right. Number one, last but not least, and this is one that you really owe it to yourself because it's a very visual. And this going back to, I mentioned on number 10, this is a standalone clip. This is what spurred that comment from the guy who said that self-storage and car washes are a scam. Hold on, Neil, you got to paint the picture. At least explain what the video is showing here. Okay. So the video is someone driving by a group of gorgeous mansions here in Wilmington, North Carolina, which is where Clint and I are based out of. And they're asking like, what do these people do? What do you do for a living? And then there is a comment that I'm pointing at that says some, where somebody said they own car washes and self-storage and I'm nodding my head. Does that set it up? Yeah. Listen to this. This is funny. What in the hell do these people do for a living? I mean, really? What in the hell do you do for a living? Where do you work? You work several part-time jobs? I wish you could see it. These are beautiful homes, mostly on the water right here in town. And she's literally just rolling through the neighborhood, yelling at people in the driveway and pointing at their houses. It resonated. And then 
Neil took a picture of himself in the comments, just pointing up to a comment that says, was it your comment or somebody else made a comment about owning car washes and storage facilities, which triggered some hate as well. But at the end of the day, it was funny that generated a lot of comments of people back and forth, good, bad, and ugly. The takeaway overall, I'll just summarize it without some of the profanity, is the reality is, I promise you, those people in those houses with that many garages and those docks with those boats out back, I promise you, they are not trading time for money. Unless they are a tobacco attorney making $5,000 an hour or even a neurosurgeon. Like This is either generational wealth, like King's Grant money or major fund manager or something like that. But whatever these people are doing, I promise you, they're not trading time for money. If you're trading time for money, you only have so much time, which means you have a ceiling. So eventually you're going to hit that ceiling and that ceiling, I can promise you, is not going to buy properties like this. So that's why people made the comment about, you know, car washes, self-storage facilities. The resounding sentiment was invested in real estate where they don't have to trade time for money and they have assets that are cash flowing on their own, either as individuals or through syndication. That's it. That's the one thing I can promise you without walking up, breaking through their security fences and knocking on each of these doors. They're not trading time for money. I can promise you that. And these people have money that is getting up and going to work for them in the morning, even if they decide not to work that day. Well said. I've got nothing to add from that. So happy new year. I hope that all your passive income dreams come true in 2024. It's been a great year and we look forward to another great year going forward. Thanks for sticking with us. Thank you so much for listening and watching the Truly Passive Income podcast. If you liked the show, if you think it would be useful for someone else, the greatest compliment that you could give us would be to share the episode, leave a comment down below, or leave us an honest review. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to let us know down below. And remember, with Truly Passive Income comes freedom of time, place, and the freedom to pursue your higher purpose.